Hi, Mage fans. Zero is Terry Robinson with Mage the Podcast. Joining me today, friend of the show, knower of things, Nathan Foxgrove. He is joining to discuss for this installment of Mage Across Time and Space, Space, Space. You thought I added that in in post. I don't. And we're going to talk about the Elizabethan era, which I know impressively little about. Almost all of my understanding of this era comes from major scientific advances, which is how I understand literally every era in human history. You can tell me George Washington was born in the 32nd century. That's fine. But if you try and tell me when the spinning jenny was invented and you're wrong, I'm going to call you out on it. So we're talking about Elizabethan magic. Nathan, what does that mean? Part of why I particularly focused in on this era was because the paradigmatic shifts happening at the time that are even drawn out uh, in the works of Shakespeare. In terms of literally Elizabethan magic, as Elizabethans would have understood it, that for the most part was when not talking about Maleficia, which was witchcraft, that would have been the work of cunning folk, which had the such modern publications as the Book of Oberon is an actual historic compilation that academics have put together on basically a grimoire of Elizabethan magic. So a whole lot of invoking Christ to do things you wouldn't expect Christ to do, like get help you find buried treasure. And they wouldn't have called themselves hermetics yet, but in mage terms, it would be the hermetics, by such as John Dee in dealing with the higher Enochian magics and dealing with court seeing and basically playing the role of Elizabeth's Merlin in advising her and doing the astrology and so forth. The man actually coined the phrase British Empire. No oh, neat. So we have the when, so we're talking about England roughly 1558 to 1603. Again, like every historical period, we're going to fudge in a little bit early and, and a little bit late. Unlike Dark Ages and Age, it's not like, it's September 17th, 1230. Deal with it, buddy. You made mention of the Book of Oberon, which is a kind of a, a lavishly illustrated, I'm going to call it academic grimoire at this point, that was kind of pieced together from previous things. You get a lot of bang for the buck. Yeah. You crack that boy open, you're getting a ritual, you're getting a fairy name, and you're getting a... <laughs> Like, I left three iron nails inside of this silver cup for two moons, and now you have to give me four and a half loaves of bread, buddy. We had a deal. And you're like, this is remarkably specific. And it kind of tells you how, how magic went then. You mentioned that it's kind of interesting as a time of transition. Where were we coming from? Like, what was the world like on the cusp of it? Well, the easiest answer to where Mage was coming from at the time, it published in a book called Mage the Sorcerer's Crusade. That is pretty much exactly period time where Mage was, the world was coming from. It's always fascinating to me with that book because the sleeper timeline goes through the 1500s, but the Mage timeline stops right at 1500. I always interpreted that as a, as a storyteller, as basically Tyrus's assumption was probably that you were going to start your mage campaign in 1500 and here's what's going on in mortal society but what happens in mage society is up to you there's so much that happens pretty quickly once you get into the 1500s that i do wish if sorcerers who say it continued it would have dealt with how would these things impacting awaken society what the hell happens to the celestial chorus and what I'm going to call the Brotherhood of Pure Thought because its canon name is just wrong on so many levels. 
You don't think Christians are going to form a cabal? No, it, uh, not then. Even if you're okay with the term cabal to refer to a group of magical practitioners, once you're using it to refer to a small group of people who accumulate a large amount of political power, you have now crossed the line. The alarm has gone off in terms of the unintended anti-Semitic implications. And the term wasn't actually recorded in use until the 17th century. Yeah, yeah it didn't exist so. yet. I use the term at my own table, the brotherhood and sisterhood of pure thought. It's both two nominally monastic orders. So within Sorcerer's Crusade, we have the idea that the world is on the cusp of change, that mm -hmm. we're exiting what it was referring to as the Dark Ages, that it may or may not be alluding to the Renaissance, uh, which in the North kind of started out as a painterly tradition and ultimately mm -hmm. turned into a literary one, and in the South kind of started as a literary change and then ultimately became more of a, a plastic arts, artistic, sculptural one. Within Mage, as you mentioned, the traditions have just come together. The March of the Nine is underway, or depending on when you're setting it, if it is in the 16th century, has collapsed in shambles. This marks the start of an almost 400-year period where the traditions are like, Ugh. the mm. Salificati have left, which I always found funny because it's like, oh no, both of them left. And within Mage Canon, you're not really an important group until the Salificati have left. So I, I really hope Mage 5th edition starts with the Salificati have left the Disparate Alliance. And then I will know that they are a, a power in the world. So we have a relatively fast increase in technology, the production of arts and so on. What's going on in the enlightened world, the, the world of darkness at this time? We don't really have any text really addressing. I think there's one sidebar in Guide to the Traditions that briefly mentions it. But what happens to the Celestial Chorus in Europe and the Gabrielites when the Protestant Reformation happens? The Celestial Chorus, given their nature as even at that point, a basically loose band of heretics, I can see weathering it pretty well, it would shatter the Gabrielites. Why is that? Who were the Gabrielites? Kind of what were they for people who don't speak uh, Sorcerer's Crusade fluently? Yeah. The Gabrielites are nominally, in terms of official technocratic history, the predecessors of the New World Order. Don't mention the Kassirafe, don't mention the Kassirafe, don't mention the Kassirafe. They were Catholic theurgists who were followed strict Catholic orthodoxy and believed in uniting the world under one God, one authority, and thus the kind of preceding the New World Order's secular views of a one-world government. They were not invited to the White Tower when the Order of Reason was formed, but they showed up. And they basically said, you're not doing this without the sanction of the church. And so we're involved or we're destroying you. And so they were involved. They were a, a founding convention of the order of reason. Basically, in the Sorcerer's Crusade era, whatever negative a picture you have in your head of a Christian chorister, that would actually be the Gabrielites the, in terms of intolerance and authoritarianism. While the chorus were the much more mystical and subversive and diverse group at the time. And pretty good with a broadsword. I think that's another thing that we kind of understate. It wasn't just the fires of purification. It was the big ass sword of purification, which I really liked. Yeah, pure, pure thought, sure. <laughs> the Gabrielites, known in the canon text as the Cabal of Pure Thought, but um, they're also known as Gabrielites, so let's just use that. They... As I would see it, you know, obviously for the bulk of them, given the entwined authority of the they are with Rome, they would be obviously deeply opposed to 
what starts in Germany with the with Martin Luther and then catches on most notably in Switzerland with John Calvin as the spread of Protestantism being theological Christian groups breaking off from the authority of the Catholic Church. That said, it is quite plausible that there would be Gabrielites in those regions who would go along with the new system and adapt to it. And so that, and that particularly, I think, would be the case in England, given that they maintained much of the original structure of the Catholic Church in England became the, the Anglican Church, rather than a wholly new church being formed. Catholicism light. It's certainly an issue that would drive the other extreme, being the people who we call the Puritans were trying to purify the Anglican Church of its remaining Catholic relics and go hardcore Protestant in their theology instead, which would certainly also play into this. Going back to Sorcerer's Crusade, the craft masons would be deeply entwined with the separatists and Puritan movements in England and very much opposed to what them and increasingly at odds with the Gabrielites. We have these religious movements that are happening that is influencing those particular groups within it. What else is happening in the world of darkness at this time? Probably the biggest things happening, I think this started more in the 1400s and have come to a head already, but certainly in Vampire. Oh, wait, we're not supposed to talk about that one, are we? I'm not going to bring it up, but you're welcome to. Your guest. Yeah. Okay. The Anarchs Revolt has exploded and the Camarilla and the Sabbat have basically are in their infancy having formed in this time period. There's a lot of overlap in the time period between the forming of the Order of Reason and the traditions with the forming of the time, same time period of the forming of the Camarilla and the Sabbat. And I suppose it's in large part because of just how much transition was happening in Europe at the time. The other big thing that jumps to mind as happening in this time period in World of Darkness canon that's very much tied to Elizabethan England is what happens at the colony of Roanoke. And what was that? That was the first English colony in North America. It was founded in 1585, and it was discovered to be empty of the European settlers in 1590. The single word was found carved on a stump, Croaton, Croaton which is not that mysterious in real life. It referred to a very nearby indigenous group, which the settlers probably left and joined to survive because the indigenous people knew how to grow food and survive in the region. And that actually happened a fair amount with colonies in North America. But in the world of darkness, what it referred to was a werewolf tribe who had basically an early battle that would have turned into the apocalypse if they hadn't all sacrificed themselves. Of the fallen werewolf tribes, they're the ones whose story is one of martyrdom and one of just heroic and thus remain heroically venerated by all the other tribes uh, that survive. We may know them as, as Middle Brother on Turtle Island. They sacrifice themselves to prevent this big bad thing, I presume, from coming through the Umbra. Because whenever yeah. a werewolf fact sacrifices themselves, it's to prevent a big bad thing from coming through the Umbra. It's kind of... A, in the same way that all mage games are invariably, you need to stop the ritual. Yeah, um, that's, <laughs> that's kind of the werewolf default, especially when a lot of them need to all go kaput at the same time. In more broad strokes, the period, of course, sees the explosion of European settlement in arriving in North and South America. So you have such other conflicts as the Second War of Rage, which is where the European werewolves went to war with the Mesoamerican other shapeshifters. And of course, you just have 
the waves of devastation befalling the groups that largely would join up. I mean, the Dream Speakers already existed, but they hadn't assimilated as many diverse indigenous groups as they later would. The first waves of devastation are befalling them that will drive the awakened of those communities largely into the Dream Speakers. Around the 1500s, the renegades have stormed the Onyx Tower within the underworld, resulting in the hierarchy kind of going for a couple decades. Not to forget our good friends, the sorcerers, the Seven Thunders are like, JC's going to be back 1500. Turns out, not so much. Generally, as Nathan suggested, kind of the end of the high mythic age. They're unambiguously, it is closed. Great Zimbabwe falls. Uh, Senex is born. So, my uh, we're a few centuries later from the shattering, from changeling perspective. So at this point, pretty uh, all of the the most no- uh, for those people who don't know, all of this is the point where all the true fae are gone from Earth, and any who stayed had to hide in human flesh to stick around, and that includes very few of their nobles. Basically, all fled, and will later come back in the 1960s. At that point, so fairy commoners are existing as changelings. They've been doing that for a couple of centuries now, but it's still relatively new. Do we have any idea what the Nefandi would be up to now? Do we get any hint on them? They're kind of thin on the ground for a couple centuries. In canon, there's very little on them. I have some ideas about what they were up to in Europe, which they've been knit together during the Sorcerer's Crusade era by, I'm sorry, her name is... Implied to be Jody Blake. Various infernal groups have been knit together as the Nefandi and are using, so they're all now using calls to induct their members, which is the basically the defining trait of what of a Nefandi versus other infernalist mages. The in terms of what I imagine they were largely up to in this era, I actually imagine that they were very involved in the witch panic, not causing, egging it on side. Malleus Maleficarum, which was a witch hunter's handbook, was published in 1486. It was initially condemned by church authorities at the time, but would still later explode in popularity. I do not imagine that the Daedalans, being the order of reason, even in their support of using the witch hunts against superstitionists, ever got on board with Malleus Maleficarum because they would know the degree to which it was BS. They would know the degree that which, well, basically misogynist, uh, not to beat around the bush about it. It is a very misogynistic text. It is the reason the word witch has a feminine connotation to us. Historically, it was gender neutral, but it was pretty much Malus Malficarum and its influence that resulted in witch hunts and witch trials hugely disproportionately targeting women. Men did die. Uh, were accused, tried, and died, but by a huge disproportionate margin, it was women. And it's very much the demonization, the sin of Eve, that women are more corruptible and and subject to lusts that drive them to evil magics. And like I said, I don't imagine even when they did support some form of witch hunts, if they could point it in the right direction. I think in general, in the world of darkness, we have to treat Jazz in reality, the majority of victims of the witch hunt were just mortal Christians who were falsely accused because that's the reality and appropriating it to be, oh no, this was actually killing wizards or vampires or anything else is kind of almost validating the atrocity to some degree. So my thinking in the Fandy were very involved into spreading paranoia and promoting that this fear of the night, this fear of the things lurking in the darkness could be used against innocent people. 
but it sounds kind of like this is the first full era where all the pieces are on the board, kind of. Even within Horizon, this is after the Great Betrayal. This is after the founding of kind of the key groups there and is referred to as the adjustment period, which is kind of the entree into several centuries of winter, which uh, when describing what is happening to a chantry, you have spring when it's formed, summer when it's productive, fall when it's in decline, and winter kind of when it's stuck. And winter can often end in a reemergence, which luckily happened with Horizon. So you've gone through what's happening on the supernatural side. What are the just historical events or like what's kind of going on in the mortal world, kind of those key highlights, because half century is a pretty long time. We're seeing a significant amount of centralization happening in European governments. The feudal system is more or less coming to an end outside of the furthest eastern reaches of Europe, like Russia, where feudalism will still stick around for a good several more centuries. But feudalism is on its way out, and authority is going through the process of being centralized in, mostly in monarchs, though that will end up taking a different route in England specifically. But in this era, it still looks like it's heading towards centralization in the monarch. Elizabeth, even when she isn't wheel personally making the policy decisions, she is still very much the figure whose authority the council making those decisions are acting on. And so we're seeing a lot more centralization away from the general nobility towards centralized monarchies. Obviously, the colonization of the Americas is huge. Basis of Spanish economic dominance in the era is the constant huge import of silver and gold that they're getting from the Americas. The whole idea of the Renaissance as this great awakening of reason and enlightenment is kind of undercut by this is the era the witch panic is happening, as well, of course, as the conflicts driven by the conflicts between Protestants and Catholics and sometimes Protestants and each other driven by the Reformation. The Ottoman Empire has just come through the apex of its power. They're still very powerful. And actually, something worth discussing is the... Um, Elizabeth being cut off from trade with many of the Catholic powers of Europe actually opens relations with the Ottoman Empire. There's um, fascinating letters between that she wrote or her secretaries wrote to the Sultan, making this appeal linking Protestantism and Islam as parallel religions in conflict with Catholic idolatry. This is the time period where actually you will start to have the first appearances of Muslims in Britain, both via traders and people who are freed from slavery from the Spanish. And so it's perfectly valid time to slip in the Ali Batin in an Elizabethan game. It would actually be much easier in this time period to be a Muslim in, in Britain than it would be to be, say, a Jew in Britain, who were still in this window banned. Judaism wouldn't be legalized in Britain until Cromwell in the 1600s. Those broad strokes of what are going on in the European region, but yeah, those are in terms of the broad stroke politics, that's what's going on. A lot of obviously political conflict between the monarchical powers of Europe along largely religious lines, though not so much in this era, but in the 1600s, you'll see the, the French monarchy really defy those lines by throwing their lot in with Protestants just to screw over the Habsburgs. England is backing Dutch revolt against Spanish rule that is largely on religious lines. And that is the conflict that ends up resulting in Spain sending a giant armada at England that obviously explodes in their face when England wins that conflict. And the uh, Spanish armada, let me get the year right here, 
1588 is it's nearer to the end of Elizabeth's reign. But when we think about Elizabethan England, we're really thinking culturally post 1588. We're thinking uh, very much the time period where England has come is coming into its golden age in terms of power. Elizabeth has completely solidified her own political position in the country. And you're having, like you said, a, a literary renaissance is going on as, as we enter the era of Marlowe and Shakespeare and Francis Bacon. Who are those key characters that we might know from the time or that you would kind of want to start your investigation with and and kind of what ideas are they promulgating? You made mention of Marlowe, you've made mention of Shakespeare, you've made mention obviously of Elizabeth, kind of who's our, for the sake of viewing the era as a game, who's our cast? If you're looking at the 1580s, one figure that you really cannot overstate the importance of is Francis Walsingham who served as Elizabeth's secretary, chief secretary in the period, which basically means prime minister. He is seen as very much the spy master. And he basically crafted the first modern security state in terms of were intelligence networks and human surveillance networks all through England that all answered to him. And if you're looking at this from a mage paradigmatic perspective, if you want to make historic figures awakened, strong Kisirafe candidate, whether they're, of course, writing sleeper history or, or in charge of it. So yeah, Francis Walsingham is obviously extremely important. And as I already mentioned, another key figure in Elizabeth's court would be John Dee, who in World of Darkness canon is explicitly, when he's alive, a hermetic. He will later be a Tremere vampire. But when he is alive, he is a, her a hermetic, awakened hermetic mage. And I would kind of suggest that in this period, there for the Protestant Daedalans and the English tradition mages, there is something of at least an uneasy peace, if not a full alliance between the two. And you can definitely embody that in Elizabeth's court with Walsingham and John Dee. So it seems like pro or anti-Elizabeth would be the more germane cleave than uh, luminary versus mystic mm -hmm. or something like exactly. that. Exactly. And those weren't even firm you know, distinctions yet in the period. It, you see the roots of it Francis Bacon starts his writing, but the really important works on empiricism won't be till after Elizabeth's death. So you you certainly can argue the Daedalans are kind of laying the groundwork to differentiate the two more, but they that hasn't happened yet in sleeper society. The Hermetics in particular, many of the figures we look back at on as, as scientific luminaries would be just as entrenched in Hermetic magic as they were in, in scientific research. They were trying. Uh, as a start, science was a lot more art than science, uh, to quote Dr. Venture. Another strong candidate to use as a, if you want to use as Awakened, you can, but uh, would be Francis Drake, could easily be a void seeker. He was the privateer prototype dashing hero pirate of the time without serving the crown, of course, and being a pirate only to the enemies of the crown. And he would be the first English circumnavigation of the globe and was a key figure in fighting the Spanish Armada. Easy guy to throw onto a sky rigger if you want. Outside those higher echelons of the court, of course, you have, as I mentioned, Marlowe and Shakespeare in this era could be another pair of figures you can kind of draw that uneasy piece or even alliance to with Marlowe being quite possibly a spy in in Walsingham's network. He multiple times 
was connected to subversive Catholics, and then the royal authority stepped in to pull him out of trouble, which would imply he was had those connections to subversive Catholics on their behest. There's nothing 100% conclusive on the topic, but there is a lot of very solid speculation on the topic that aren't fringe theories. Speaking of fringe theories, Shakespeare was Shakespeare. Some individual scenes might have been written by other people, but Shakespeare was Shakespeare. If, yes, by that you mean he was one of the first syndicate constructs to go out <laughs> sure. into the world to produce all yeah. the works. But Francis Bacon was not Shakespeare. For one thing, Francis Bacon would not have made the specific errors in terms of history references that Shakespeare made. Because Francis Bacon would have had more than one book on the topic. And we know the exact book Shakespeare was using because he replicates the exact same errors. But what Nathan is is making reference to is common pastime, seemingly, is to say that William Shakespeare, or Shakespeare as it may have been pronounced at the time, was not actually the author of the, of the plays of Shakespeare, that it was some other luminary. How could the son of a tanner produce this, despite the fact that the texts are replete with mentions to the craft and trade of tanning? And it's one of those things where it, it's a slight variant of, surely this single person or group of people couldn't be as great as me or my people are, thus it had to have been someone else. QV the pyramids not being built or, or any number of ancient structures being uh, alien megaliths or what have you. This is kind of that seemingly writ small. There are a lot of possibilities in terms of directions you want to take Shakespeare if you want to connect him to awakened society. My own personal favorite would be Fellowship of Pan, which who are a group of ecstatics very connected to the Fae. The, uh, but there's a lot of other possibilities that would be equally valid. He was, of course, famously friends with Marlowe. Marlowe, while, Mar while he was alive, was much more successful than Shakespeare. Shakespeare would, of course, become more successful than Marlowe ever was, but not till after Marlowe died in a bar fight. Pardon me, greatest of the Kinane, my mistake. Ah, yes. Those are another figures of the era that would have high recognition, keeping on the topic of major players and authority. Of course, some um, King James is already King of Scotland in this period and is a Protestant aligned with Elizabeth and very much jockeying for the position of being officially recognized as her heir, since she famously never has any children of her own and he's her cousin. Eventually, he is recognized as her heir. And when he inherits the throne after her death in 1603, it is the event that unites Scotland and England into under a single crown, which obviously has never been broken to this day. There have been wars that might have broken it, but they didn't. <laughs> James, I would say, inheriting the throne, you could argue, is the point where the uneasy peace between the Protestant Daedalans and the tradition mages shatters. John Dee is expelled from court. James himself is much, much, much more paranoid about witches than Elizabeth ever was. He even wrote one of the premier, not Malleus Malficarum level, but one of the premier ma uh, manuals on the topic, the Daemonologi, which I might be mispronouncing, Demonologi, in, um, which he published in 1597 when he was king of Scotland, but before he was king of England. Very much rebutting an earlier book, The Discovery of Witches by Reginald Scott in 1584, which actually is very skeptical about the existence of witches. And you could even see that as maybe the order of reason starting to go, hey, what if instead of fighting witchcraft as evil, we got people to not even believe it was real. And you see the early seeds of that idea. And that would eventually, of course, shape the paradigm and shape or shape the consensus and shape what is and is not vulgar magic 
those early ideas, but would obviously take at least another century to fully start catching on those ideas, not till after, of course, the final hurrah of for European witch hunts being, of course, famously Salem, which was uh, in the 1690s, which was a English colony in North America. And as after that, we enter the 1700s and, of course, the Enlightenment and all this and the order of reason begins the early days of its transition to what will become the technocracy. So is there anything else that you think we need to know before we start diving into the magic? Well, this might be more of a topic for the magic, but I, I kind of referenced the idea of Hamlet having that subtext of a paradigmatic divide. And it's really drawn out when talking about whether the ghost of King Hamlet, Hamlet's father, Hamdad. whether or not he can actually be a ghost. The divide, while it isn't labeled in the text as a Catholic versus Protestant one, it is very much, given the time period, the subtext of the divide, because Catholics believe, at the time, believe in purgatory, believe that there is a state of the dead, of the restless dead that are still dealing with their sins, neither in heaven nor hell. Which so Catholicism very much has that door open for the existence of the restless dead. Also, of course, Catholicism has the idea of saints, so you still have the idea the dead in heaven can be interventionists. Protestantism firmly rejects these concepts. And the opposing view in the text of Hamlet, since other people see the ghost of King Hamlet, so it's not just so Hamlet knows it can't just be him being crazy. The other possibility is this is a demon trying to manipulate me. And that would be the Protestant perspective of the time on the topic. Now, the one other mystical figure I think of from the time is Edward Kelly. Uh, what was he up to and kind of why is he notable? Well, Edward Kelly was a collaborator with John Dee. And there's even reference in Guide to the Traditions, actually, of a hermetic dream speaker crossover group that kind of are re trying to recreate the D. Kelly alliance, because that book at least suggests that Edward Kelly was a European dream speaker. I'm a little skeptical of that take, because if anything, John D. was of the two of them, the one more concerned with spirits and talking to angels. And uh, Edward Kelly was much more the alchemist. What crosses my mind is European Dream Speaker is a really good cover that doesn't come with any attachments to any local, to any authorities for someone in the Salificati to take when interacting with the traditions, given that if they were openly Salificati, they'd be attacked as traitors. So that's my kind of speculation on Kelly. Kelly seemed to exist at kind of the, the the cleave between the two, the alchemy and pursuit of the spiritual or in communication with spirits. Because again, kind of before all the identities are firmly laid down, no one can tell you that you're wrong. And that's kind of one of the fun things about these historical settings where someone can talk about extensively the electrification of fishes as a means to ascension. And everyone's like, yeah, cool. So we've laid down that notional foundation let's get into the magic. What do you think magic is going to look like for this, Eric? What are some of the instruments or even paradigms that are coming onto the scene at this point or would be exceptionally popular now? As you already gave an example of with the Book of Oberon, you have obviously a lot of these cunning folk traditions, which you can obviously would be very associated with the verbena. 
given that that's often their roles in rural communities is serving as those healer cunning folk, which was not seen as mal- uh, as witchcraft. Cunning folk is the term for kind of the, the umbrella term for rural frequently magic workers, which is different from witchcraft, which is uh, frequently used to thwart it. Because you, you say cunning folk, and that sounds close enough to like fair folk that I want to make sure that I'm following along. Though it's certainly with this era of for Elizabethan cunning folk, they certainly would have dealt strongly with the fair folk as Book of Oberon kind of drinks out lots of packs with fairies, commanding fairies by invoking God and so forth with very strong element through that uh, through that text. Despite the later associations with the word witch, these people would not be automatically accused of witchcraft, which was in and of itself in many places a crime. And they were seen as socially beneficial to the community and not at all necessarily at odds with Christianity, though some educated Christian theologians might go, that's not a thing. It was not labeled inherently as heresy. And like it kind of existed this, again, this interesting seam midway between the verbena and the chorus seemingly. Where it is, I fully believe in God, I may follow Protestant Reformation or I may follow Church of England or something like this, but I know I have inherited this great lore of how to deal with the dark and the demonic and maybe, maybe periodically find your car keys or something like that. Or I I, I know how to get away. And, And it's one of those things where, depending on how you view the nature of the demonic, a blessing and the removal of a curse can seemingly be identical. I am not demanding that this field grow. I am expelling all of the dark forces from this area that is preventing this flax crop from coming in. And that's going to be kind of this framework that we get. Frequently, the terms of art that we get in other languages around the area come from some origin that is a weird mix of exorcist and warrior when you start tracking down some of the terms because just about every culture of this time has this or a similar role. It's not quite the witch at the edge of the village, but it's someone who is wise in the ways of the arts of the spirits. And to give a modern example of what you're talking about of that verbena chorus intersection, I think Mexican bruja would be a point of intersection today between the two where you have a lot of those cunning folk practices that some outsiders might label witchcraft, but in invoking saints and use and the authority of God and drawing them into into that context. And as you mentioned, Catholic magic at the time is just more fun because you have the saints to act as intercessory figures. And my recommendation for mages is make up a couple, (laughs) have an, have an awakened saint if you want to. Yeah. They could have easily have their own. It's important to me, as, as Nathan mentioned earlier, fundamentally, the Celestial Chorus is a group of heretics, even if they're not going to recognize it. So they're like, yeah, we've got, uh, uh, St. Jim. <laughs> You're like, you don't know about him yet, but he's pretty big. What's interesting and what's driving, actually, I would think a lot of the, the witch panic at the time is that Protestantism is kind of looking at all of this mainstream mysticism within Catholicism and is in not rejecting it as non-existent yet, other than you have those outlier works like the discovery of witches, but instead is pushing it into, no, that's evil. And so you have the Protestant continental Europe, certainly you have in this era already full-fledged witch panics happening. There were witch trials in Elizabethan England, but the one key trait that they lacked that prevented them from becoming the horrible situation that was happening in Germany is that they didn't have the demand that you have to name other witches 
in order to be acquitted or in order to be forgiven with your confession and repentance. As famously underlined in the play The Crucible, you have this spiraling accusations where every person to get off has to name more people and thus more people who aren't willing to do that die. That at this point is not happening in Elizabethan England. Elements of it will come in under James, because as I said, James is much more paranoid about witchcraft. So beyond the, the cunning folk I mentioned, you also, of course, you have the Christian theurgic magic, obviously still practiced in its Catholic context by the Gabrielites. Certainly in their minds, they would not be telling God what to do so much as calling upon God to assist them in what God definitely wanted them to be doing anyway. That idea is very much you know central to their paradigm. With the Protestantism of the time, now this will change massively in later eras, particularly by the time you get to the 1800s and the Second Great Awakening, but Protestantism of the time is not big on miracles. They happened in the biblical era, but we're past that because the Bible has been validated by miracles and thus it does. we don't need more miracles. And so Protestant religious authorities are much more skeptical on the topic of miracles. I have actually played with the idea of what, say, a Calvinist converted Gabrielite would look like. And basically the whole lot of fortune, what will eventually be called entropy, and played out coincidentally as they basically have constant favor of divine providence, but never as an overt miracle. I'm here to predestination your ass. Yeah. Again, big swords. So that's definitely part of what's going on. I mentioned, of course, the hermetics are doing what they've done for centuries at this point, though, certainly making advances in their own paradigm. Enochian gets codified in this era, in large part by John Dee, that being the the language of angels for actually bossing around angels. What is the framework for that? Do you think they were bossing it around, or is it one of those things where they were calling on existing agreements or requesting the blessing of? Like, Because to me, that would be the traditional definition of of theurgy. There might be a bit of a sleeper, sorcerer, awakened kind of divide a little bit on this, because I think as awakened hermetic paradigm has been demonstrated in canon and described in their tradition books and such, I think they definitely verge much more into the overtly bossing them around. They also, when it comes to really powerful ones, will make packs, but that's almost because they have to. There is a fundamental level where awakened hermetics are first and foremost will workers, that this is about the triumph of their divine human will. You know, I think there's the line that's gone around is that, you know, the hermetics start by talking about God, end up talking about themselves, and you don't know where the tr- where the transition happened. I kind of like it, though, because you have that fundamental divide where it's like, hey, is there a right order to the cosmos and where, where do I sit in it? And some people are content to sit in place and the hermetics uh, aren't. Helps bring down the divine right of kings. So... <laughs> Yeah, uh, but you're absolutely right that um, in terms of real world or in the world of darkness sleeper occultism, the Enochian dealing with angels would be much more respectful than how the awakened hermetics have generally been described. You could honestly just interpret that as a power relationship that the uh, hermetics have the muscle to throw around, so they do. And I'm kind of curious because the other thing that kind of gets implied is this is in the, the tail end of an era of a bygone exodus from Earth. So I wonder how many creatures garbed themselves in the veneer of angels because that's what could survive. And suddenly we have a story about a weird village at the edge of the wood that someone's a 
strange blue winged creature covered in eyes that seems to bless the children and grant strange insight into time but that ain't no angel and and the fun part about it is or even worse if you're playing demon the fallen and it is yeah (laughs) Yeah. or it it was so and and the fun part to me about this is all the john d stuff we have so much of it out there you can include the glyph in a game you can have players play with it or come up with their enlightened variant of it the monus hieroglyphica is out there it has it is rich in esoteric symbolism uh, there's a bunch of stuff in the alchemical tradition that we haven't interpreted that we haven't really figured out what the authors are trying to say yet and these are things that are uh, gloriously available online see my conversation with brian johnson previously about some of those early modern occult texts to get more information on them you can just kind of run with it. My last note on the the World of Darkness is we get this one kind of throwaway reference in either Second or, or Revised, which basically says one of the things that's kind of special about angels is they are unique, that once an angel is bound, no one else can bind it. So I like the idea that maybe this was the start of the Hermetic Angel Wars. <laughs> Where everyone was like, okay, we know that there are 333 available archons from God that are available. The sooner we can cap, we can Pokemon all of them, the more powerful House Bonnie Sages will be, or we can prevent the Order from killing them, or we can prevent them from being tainted into demons by the Nefandi, or I just use it as a personal display of power or something like that. Just to throw out, I think there's also a reference at one point to how the chorus does not like how the Hermetics treat angels, so they would get involved in that conflict. In the same way that the Verbena are generally opposed to animals and circuses. <laughs> it's kind of... <laughs> And that gives me the idea of this like angelic revolutionary front that like tries to break in and free them. Um, And now we have this like PETA or this animal liberation front of the uh, 1600s if you want to have a slightly maybe more farcical game, which I'm certainly not opposed to. (laughs) So and in terms of other paradigms, things that in real world were not organized magical traditions, but certainly have the viability for the awakened to have full paradigms of and have even been referenced as such in canon there's all the world's a stage literally a shakespeare quote is listed as an example paradigm what does that mean what is what is the artistic revolution that makes that different than how previous passion plays or or clown services were being done we're seeing much more in this period professional actors, prevent acting companies. We are seeing built theaters dedicated to the purpose, famously the Globe being where Shakespeare worked. We are seeing much more scripted works that are not explicitly about a core religious moral, where like the passion plays were. There's a service to the state going on in creation of basically propaganda in framing history, which itself is very much something that can be a mage practice in both reshaping mind and time to reshape the raw relationship to the past. Shakespeare, of course, famously wrote a great deal of Tudor propaganda in terms of what was sanctioned in, ter- in, in his portrayal of the War of the Roses, and very much the, the story of the victorious Tudors overcoming those evil Yorks and validating the current regime. So all the world's a stage. At its most basic level, it would be using the arts to do things like mind magic to directly influence people. At its more abstract and mystical, you can very much get into platonic ideas of, you know, the shadows on the cave walls and using performance and prop to reshape reality. At one point, actually, a, an interview you did with 
Puka mentioned that a touchstone on the paradigm that I have as well is Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead, is a fantastic play that I'm hoping to perform in in the near future. Can you give us a short summary of that? It's Hamlet from the perspective of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, who are two relatively minor characters in Hamlet. But it is framed as basically they have gotten caught up in this almost supernatural play that they don't know the script of and are just trying to survive, making it up as they go along. And as the title tells you, and as if you know Hamlet, you know they do not survive. A major figure, probably the largest role in the show besides the two of them, is the figure, the player king, who in Hamlet is another minor figure because he's just leading this theater troupe that come in that Hamlet charges to perform a play so he can check a play about his father's murder so he can see his uncle's reaction. But the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead make this a powerful supernatural figure. The things he portrays in doing that play, they all work on the logic of theater. He can quote unquote, teleport, but all he's doing is walking off stage and coming back on stage. And it's a different scene, turning objects, treating objects as props and props as real objects and charging people, you know, shaping people's fate by charging them in a role in a script. It's a very strong example of how the all the world's a stage paradigm could play out with a malicious, with a somewhat malicious trickster figure, but you could also apply it to many other character motivation yep 1966 play tom stoppard arcadia i'm fond of but yes any number of works that start really interrogating the notion of drama as medium and to me this is a useful bridge because this is kind of like a a lull in platonist and gnostic thought in a lot of cases and it's this weird secular way that it carries through like what does it mean to embody an archetype and as you mentioned earlier this is also an era where the notion of information as a thing is coming out because as you mentioned we have one of the first modern spy networks under walsingham and the notion of the nation as an entity with data feeds going through it is going to be novel to me this is the first era where you could theoretically have data one nothing nothing crazy but it exists we have these streams of information from coming across prior to this divination was considered to be how you did spy craft the other thing that comes into me with this idea of there being a network across the uk it seemed to be like the notion of nationhood in england at the time kind of beat out a lot of other areas that this was probably an era where you would i think of yourself maybe as English as opposed to maybe just a Londoner or or being from Cornwall or something. Maybe not necessarily Cornish, but yeah. That certainly bears out in Shakespeare, they, the way he talks about English identity. And kind of the last thing that comes together from your description, this seems to be the era of the great work. Like, what was the metaphysical purpose of Drake circumnavigating the world. What did that do to expand the era of understanding? The construction of the Globe Theater, what was that as a work? The information flowing through the spy network, the destruction of maybe these old pagan sites, the last vestiges of Wingard's March or something finally being completed, these trade relationships, like now is England connected to the web of faith through this weird Batini connection. There are these large things that are being done that are the precursors of great magic to come later. And more importantly, it is in an era where people don't necessarily realize the power that these actions are being done. This is an era where your verbena could be co-opting this to reactivate ancient ley lines or something like that. Or your chorister is trying to do the same as the Ascension War just kind of takes on a very different feel in this place in this time. 
I referenced it earlier, but John Dee coining the term British Empire very much kind of implies this idea of this great global work that they, for better or worse. Yeah, a very powerful naming ritual, a, a seining as it were, but... And the it also makes me think the paradigm of the English in the New World, very much centered on the act of farming being wealthy, being terranorming the paradigmatic reshaping of it to fit their consensus. And they actually make the literal biblical argument that their rights to the new world are because God commanded Adam to till the soil. They get there and from their perspective, and underlining that very strongly, the indigenous had not done that, that they, by tilling this, this paradise that was untilled, are laying the, are laying the first claim to it. Now, in reality, the North America was such a paradise because it had been heavily terrified yes. by the indigenous people. <laughs> but the English were not willing to hear that. So now also this whole argument, you know, it's kind of, uh, I'm Jewish. And so this whole argument is kind of very strange to me because from my perspective of what Christians call the Old Testament, there's a repeated theme about how bad farmers are. Like shepherds are good. Shepherds are heroes. Be a shepherd. Farmers kill their brothers, enslave Israelites. They're, but don't trust a farmer is a repeated element through, uh, through Tanakh. Are you telling me a recurring theme in Jewish wisdom is the idea to have valuable objects that you can take with you in a hurry literally yes um when tanakh was compiled into the text we know today it had obviously had preceding pieces that all came together but and when it was edited into the form we know today it was in the wake of the babylonian captivity it is very much framed as how did things go wrong and the answer is because we started farming and having kings instead of being a shepherding people who followed prophets like in the good old days george scott agrees with you that's all i'm saying and, and just for listeners tanakh uh colloquially referred to as the Hebrew Bible, generally the, the first five books, plus a, a few other texts that kind of go with it. Uh, in simplest terms, it's largely, but not completely, what Christians would call the Old Testament. Of course, Jews don't call it that because we don't have a new one. No one called it World War One at the time. Exactly. <laughs> that whole farming element, obviously, in particularly in North America, very has a very strong, great right, paranorming, paradigm-shifting element going on. And interesting that, of course, in, in terms of real history, Roanoke fails because they can't pull it off. Not necessarily because a giant the eater of souls itself manifested and a bunch of werewolves had to die. Uh, that element is certainly there. But in the same way that the American independence movement is framed in one edition as being a paradox backlash to the expansion of empire, we could have the same thing there. An entire group, a failed terror norming thing, or alternatively it succeeds and it falls into the umbra or something like that. Roanoke is still out there. It fell into the high umbra though, and characters can go certainly encounter it there. Kurt Anderson in his book, Fantasyland talks about the founding of American madness essentially being the Roanoke colony because at the time, by the time a second colony was launched by the English, everyone knew that Roanoke had disappeared and America was founded by the people who were like, right, they all disappeared. I'm going to give it a go. So <laughs> if you're wondering why Americans are a little bit wacky, that may help do it. But yeah, uh, Kurt Anderson's Fantasyland. He also digs into RPGs towards the end. I'm like, whoa, buddy, let's, uh, let's, let's, let's cool your jets there. 
in terms of the Europeans that were specifically English settlers that would lay the foundation for what would become the United States, in addition to in the Southern United States, it being, as you said, the people who were after fortune, who were willing to take that risk again. You, of course, in Massachusetts Bay, you have the most hardcore religious fanatics imaginable showing up to create their city on a hill. That obviously also lays a major contrast, which I know some historians have stressed as being a element where you basically have proto-roundheads settling northern United States and proto-cavaliers settling the southern United States, and that inevitably leading to a civil war in the United States, just like it led to in England. I would downplay that take a little bit because I think it it minimizes the actual primary cause of the civil war, um, which was the owning people. It's still definitely a paradigmatic difference that was very much involved in the in the early colonization of North America. For more information on the seeds of how those English folkways eventually cause problems, I recommend Albion Seed by David Hackett Fisher, because I only am familiar with things at the century level. So kind of from what you've done, this seems to be an era where there probably isn't a lot of vulgar magic, seemingly. We don't have a lot to point to, but we have an era where the state is an instrument. We have the first cases where our focus for, for or instrument for it could be a whole bunch of bureaucrats or could be my spy network or could be the class of working folk in my town or village or could be all of my farmers who help me cultivate the land and, and pull together quintessence or something like that. Quite at odds with the official Order of Reason supplement, the First Sorcerer's Crusade, I would actually say the Order of Reason has way more to deal with in terms of coincidental versus vulgar than the traditions do uh, in this era, because them pushing the limits of the of technology would probably elicit more backlash than mysticism would. If I was going to throw out a suggestion, if you wanted to, say, balance the scales a little bit, in terms of having vulgar magic in the era, because what we think of as the consensus in mage canon, according to the Order of Hermes revised tradition book, doesn't really kick in until the English Civil War. So in this era, it is allowed to work differently. And obviously we have that with the whole how Gorge can be positive for you half the time, according to Sorcerer's Crusade. But I, I might suggest that it might consider less what people think is impossible and more what people think is evil. That the sleeper consensus rejecting something as evil could result in scourge for you that marks you with a witch's mark, that marks you, that that gives you the thing, you know, maybe you float in water now because of that backlash and thus are more likely to be perceived as and labeled a witch. And just like in Victorian era, the question is more or less, is your magic impolite or not? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I do like the idea of, is it malicious or is it drawn from an evil source? And and, and kind of to that, that technocracy question, John D cut his teeth as an as a map maker as like this is why the celestial correspondences seemingly came so naturally to him i don't know which kind of direction that it necessarily grew we have tom harriet who is advances in studies of light john napier we have logarithms it, uh, difficult calculations are, are doable for the first time going a little bit further east and a little we have tycho brahe observing a supernova the celestial sphere is no longer immutable 
Uh, William Gilbert is talking about the discovery of magnetism. This just feels like an especially rich period for practices that can all coexist. Yeah, and of course, in from the Dalen side, Europe, heliocentrism is on the table. It is not accepted yet, but it is showing up and is emerging on the table. This is, of course, news for Europe, but it was uh, but was not for India, which was well ahead of us on the topic. I say West because I'm white. And I do like the idea that that's going to have umbral impacts, that suddenly the high umbra starts rearranging or getting to the shards and shade realm suddenly moves because Earth is no longer at the center of this and you can't depend on Mercury being in retrograde or whatever to kind of get there. Or at very least, the the paths are rerouting themselves because um, obviously the very layout of the umbra can be different for different umbral travelers. So and based on their paradigm and based on the consensus they're coming from, the umbra may respond accordingly. And I like the idea that Elizabeth's spy network or the mapping of England is what is used to break the old paths or the paths of the wick. And that is kind of a, a mass working there. So to get back to maybe a more contemporary game, why would characters want to go there? Are there any interesting events that they may want to do or disrupt? And are there any cool wonders they could try and steal? In terms of cool wonders, the one that always comes to my mind, and there's a whole Doctor Who episode, which is way less good than it used to be, but the whole doc, fantastic Doctor Who episode about a lost Shakespeare play and having magic encoded into it. The, now, they they made that one uh, Love's Labor's One, which we believe existed because Love's Labor's Lost, I think it's listed in some of the folios, and Love's Labor's Lost clearly ends on a cliffhanger. It doesn't, it just it doesn't really go anywhere. It's meant to have a follow-up. Yeah, Cardinio is probably the other best known in the history. But I mean, if you want to go more fictionally afield with it, it's actually kind of interesting that Shakespeare doesn't have an Arthur play because that was a huge part of Tudor propaganda because Henry VII in winning the War of the Roses had you know cloaked himself in the legend of Arthur, uh, named his firstborn son Arthur, intending there to be a new uh, historic King Arthur, of uh, Arthur Tudor of England. There wasn't because he died before inheriting the throne and his younger brother Henry became Henry VIII. But the point is, Arthuriana was very central in a lot of Tudor propaganda. So it's actually interesting that, as far as we know, Shakespeare never touched the topic. And uh, that might be a fun, magical item. The original script, if can if it can be found, could be an interesting magical item that, tear, that ties this era's magic together with the more high fantasy Arthuriana era. And it sounds like the rise of James I is a real good excuse to say, this is why we don't know about this thing. Or we need to rescue this, this document before it. Maybe his purge broke all of the remaining portals and a start of and and James the first is the start of the shattering uh in England or something like that 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 would be interesting having the shattering for changelings be later in England because of course it would mean then you can actually use Oberon and Titania as noble ruler as the your king and queen of, of fairy not having been forced out yet Shakespeare holds the door open and James the first shuts it or something like that and for a resource on that, I would point to the Sandman issue, Midsummer's Night's Dream, that involves Shakespeare discovering that his commissioned play, Midsummer's Night's Dream, is meant to be performed for the actual court of Oberon and Titania. Raises and, the stakes a little, I'd think. Yeah. I'm su- actually surprised Titania took it as well as she did. Are, are there items associated with John D? You made friends, like, do you think Francis Drake's The Last Skyrigger or whatever is still around? Th- that could definitely work. Uh, John D, he had 
a, I believe, obsidian black mirror he used for meditation on. And obsidian, of course, coming from New World Trade. So it has a little bit of Mesoamerican tie-in there. But he had a black mirror that he used as a item for his practice, as a tool for his practices, that at very least, if not a full wonder, which it easily could be as well. So that would definitely be an item that could tie in there. Yeah, the neat thing for me, though, is you make mention that this was a time of unusual conviviality between some of the English groups. I like the idea that kind of a precursor to the British Museum is started in some sort of umbral realm or something like this. And again, we got to hide all this stuff before James I comes to power and breaks everything. And now we get to have the national treasure for Mage, where we have to bust Francis Drake's Skyrigger out of the other British museum, which is actually just like by the town of Grimsby or something like that. And we get to have this fantastic quest where we're being informed by the time, but our characters don't need to be invoking time travel or anything like that. So we had John Dee's mirrors, maybe his original writings. At this point, weird things are coming back from the colonies. Maybe a random Mayan codex makes its way back. Given the region that would have to probably go through Spain yeah, yeah, yeah. To, um, to make it to England. But, the, but then again, if Francis Drake, you know, raided the ship, could have brought it back as bounty. In terms of looking back at the era, I mean, there's definitely tons of reason for the technocracy too, in terms of all of the global terra norming that we've talked about in terms of great works and shaping the celestial shaping of the globe is stuff that laid massive foundation for their works. And of course, from a tradition perspective, if you want to go back and hate and subvert it or, or learn enough about it to subvert it in the present, a major area to explore. On the other hand, it could be, uh, you know, talking about this uneasy piece, let me, let's call it Pax Gloriana of the era, is something that if you wanted a more amicable relationship between the technocracy and the traditions in the present could be a point to look back to and explore as a historical precedent for establishing that. And I like the idea that, as you mentioned, that that Arthurian legend is something that a fair number of people within the technocracy are going to draw uh, inspiration from. Or this is a case where your Navalon characters are looking back to this as kind of a, a golden era or something mm-hmm. like this. And especially if they end up throwing in with the disparates, the, that's a definite place where that Pax Gloriana can be drawn on. Yeah. The Protestant Catholic divide is probably going to result in a lot of property items and objects kind of changing hands that that now suddenly finds itself in relocated church vaults or, or something like that. Are there any particular bygones or supernatural creatures that were particularly popular of the era? Is this a time where where people still think there are dragons in the British Isles? I don't believe that the there was a literal belief in the continued existence of dragons. They, they may be opened to them having once existed in a literal sense, but it was an important symbol. Uh, again, Henry VII strongly embracing his own Welsh background, very much embraced the symbol of the dragon and tying himself to Arthur, Arthur Pendragon. It's a very important symbol. And of course, there's, of course, wiggle room in the world of darkness in terms of what people would generally have believed at the time. Because in a world where dragons literally exist, it's much more plausible that people held out belief longer. Yeah. Just like, you know, the vampires. But this is still an era where people could go on a unicorn hunt or be dealing with fairies or have to deal yeah, with... Those were much more literally... It, certainly the Book of Oberon implies they were literally believed in. Other sources, which probably come from much more erudite, educated sources, were like, uh, like in Charles 
Chaucer's time, people were like, well, no one believes in fairies today. But obviously, some people did. I think it's probably a level of education divide. But yeah, belief in fairies, definitely very common in rural areas. And obviously, even in the more urban areas, there's at least great amount of art around the topic, even if they aren't necessarily literally believed in. You were still pulling in bits of Celtic lore, the idea of there being banshees or beanshee kind of floating around as a thing. Open water travel is enough that mermaids are kind of in popular lore, and you're going to have any number of variants on that, ranging from selkies to river maidens and so on. Goblins and imps are still believed to be a thing. Very strong era for changing crossovers, if that's what you're, uh, if that's what you want to do. And then as we discussed, it's inter- it's an interesting idea to move the shattering forward in time, because there's such a fairy resurgence in. That's a word that actually gets important usage in Changeling. Yeah, if you want to posit the little resurgence, I think that could also be an interesting historical event. Hence the she Oberon and Titania showing up in the era, even though the shattering and their departure had already happened. It's a definite era where you can do heavy mage changeling crossovers and stuff. And certainly the whole renaissance of art and theater is going to be provide ample opportunity for musings by changelings, um, which is where they inspire art to harvest their fuel stat from humans. One of the things that I always like is it's like, haha, Titania and Oberon were, were fairies, were changelings or, or fae or something like that. What if they weren't? And your changing character encounters one of them and you're like, I don't know what that is, but it ain't one of us. There's certainly precedent in the world of darkness for the Arcadian Gateway being a realm in the middle umbra that is inhabited by spirits who have the identity of fairies. But they mechanically, they are middle umbral spirits. Suggested they may once have been fairies, but because they took refuge in this middle umbral realm, they they turned over time into spirits. In the same way that what you call an angel may just be a different high umbral embodiment that is being drawn into the material world and ain't no angel. Uh, someone familiar with that spire or with that afterworld would not necessarily recognize it as a herald of the throne or what have you. Uh, so so we've done a pretty rich rundown. You've given a bunch of reasons of why it would be interesting. Where do we go from here? Where, if people are like, oh, this is fascinating. Nathan brought up something really cool. How, how does a listener follow up on this? We've mentioned a few great sources. I mean, obviously, the Book of Oberon itself, if you want to look that up online, it, it is an academic compilation and translation, in some cases, into more modern English that is quite useful if you're looking for magical practices for the time. As I said, if you want to explore that all the world's a stage paradigm, I cannot recommend the the movie of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern enough. Fantastic film and was directed by Tom Stoppard, who wrote the play. So it is very, very faithful. It is just as valid as the original play itself. Obviously, the works of Shakespeare and Marlowe themselves are great resources. For a more academic sense, I would actually suggest if you're interested in these paradigmatic fights between Protestants and Catholics, the a great starting point is the book Reformations by Carlos Iyer. is a very good just general academic overview of primarily the 1500s and 1600s and the religious conflicts in Europe of the time. Uh, and he takes the perspective of that it can't be solidified into a single Protestant Reformation. There were, in fact, many smaller individual Reformations, including what is labeled 
the Counter-Reformation, which is the changes within the Catholic Church, he actually argues that that actually had roots predating the Protestant Reformation and can and should be seen as another Reformation in and of itself. Fairy Queen by Edmund Spencer, the fairy queen in question, Gloriana, is Elizabeth. And it is very much symbolically rooted in that. And It's um, a big boy, though, so be warned. Yeah, book that I mentioned, I think I mentioned before, The Sultan and the Queen by Jerry Broughton uh, goes in, in depth in that um, Elizabethan England Ottoman Empire relationship. I mean, I in terms of role-playing resources, actually, um, the Dark Eras book for Chronicles of Darkness has a whole Elizabethan chapter. It focuses on the vampires and the changelings in that era, but in terms of just a role-playing resource about playing in Elizabethan England, it's it's a good one. And I think the individual chapters are available on DriveThruRPG, so you don't have to get the whole big book if you want. In terms of another fictional resource, the Marvel Comic 1602 by Neil Gaiman is a fun resource. I realized when we started this interview is, oh, I should have watched the episode, the streaming what if episode that does it because I know they were doing it and I haven't so I haven't seen it yet. So I don't know if that's any good, but the original comic is good and fun. And it, it, it it's fun. It places individual Marvel characters in the historic roles of some of these figures we've talked about. Nick Fury, uh, Sir Nicholas Fury of the shield of the queen is Wal- is based on Walsingham. Her Mr advisor Stephen Strange is John D. So those elements are drawn into it in interesting ways. It does do something I would consider though a mistake, a common mistake about the era that the world of darkness in general is guilty of, which is over tying together the Inquisition with witch hunts, which is not historically true generally at all. The Spanish Inquisition and the and as well as Portuguese were concerned with conversos, lapsed conversos primarily, being Jews and Muslims who had converted to Christianity but were secretly, supposedly practicing their original religion or passing it down. And policing against that was their atrocity that they were involved with. The Spanish Inquisition never got onto the witch panic train. If anything, if you were going to be tried by someone in Europe for on the accusation of witchcraft, you probably would want it to be the Spanish Inquisition because they would be the most skeptical about it and most likely to acquit you. That's something to keep in mind. But of course, the sh- we have the idea of the Shadow Inquisition in the World of Darkness, which is a whole other thing that eventually becomes the Society of Leopold. And they might have been the ones more in bed with the Gabrielites and more involved with hunting traditionalists, as opposed to the actual sleeper Spanish Inquisition, which was not. Those are some of the big resources that jumped to my mind. And a one least one book by a former guest of the show... One of the early episodes before you were on, Terry, John D. and the Empire of Angels by Jason Louvre actually is a pretty good overview of John D. written by someone who is a practitioner and believer in the practices in question. And obviously, whether you think that may that's a positive or negative comes depends on your own probably depends on your own spiritual views. But it's a very at least a very interesting perspective to have to get on John D. Kind of looks like Mark Ruffalo too, Jason Louv, just a little bit in my opinion. And and after this era, we have the Jacobian era, where we have the 22 year, we could say dark era under James I, which did see the continuation of the cultural and artistic developments under Elizabeth, but certainly in a more doctrinaire environment. We get Carolinian era starts, and then the English Civil War kicks off, which ultimately we get to the era of George I to George IV, 
but that's that's centuries later at this point. In terms of the English Civil War, I think the one thing to really note as really important from a mage perspective is the degree to which the fall of the craft masons is probably the most important aspect to draw out there. So the craft masons would have been in this era deeply entrenched in Protestantism, basically becoming the counter pillar in the order of reason to the Gabrielites Catholicism, to the point that if anything, they probably would have been a little bit on the outs from the Elizabethan authorities because they would have been more Puritan aligned, but they end up going uh, really full on with the uh, levelers and diggers in the English Civil War, being basically very religious proto-socialists is a gross simplification, but it's basic, but it's the relevant element here, which basically results in the high guild and the Gabrielites having reason to go, yeah, that's enough and take out the craft masons. Now, obviously they have survivors that end up in other conventions or traditions even, but the, as an organized group, they get destroyed in that era. Yeah. We get them, they get wiped out in, uh, I think 1670 and there's kind of a, v- a void that exists thereafter. And we have mm-hmm. the idea in Sorcerer's Crusade though, that like one of the tools between the high guild and the craft masons is craft masons do consider revolution to be a legitimate form of exerting the order of reason paradigm it's like yeah you can claim that you're in charge but if you piss off enough of my friends um, we have the divine right of the pitchfork, which we've used a lot of times in the past. So uh, one thing that I wish had been more clear was just how numerous the craft masons were until the, the middle of the 17th century. Yeah, I agree. One of the things that always confused me with that plot point is why would this event in England necessarily impact the craft masons throughout continental Europe, for example? I mean, I guess the High Guild and the Gabrielites could have carried out the agenda elsewhere, but it hasn't been stre- uh, drawn out as such. So it's not clear exactly how fully they're impacted. But if one, you know, in, in a very arguably idealized sense of the American Revolution wanted to draw out that, you know, that the New World ended up being a refuge for craft masons, and hence the role of the founding fathers, the number of them that were Freemasons, and their and if you wanted to tie their idea, their ideas of what we would now call democracy, but they would never have called it that, to the craft mason ideology and creating a more equal society, not a truly equal one, but definitely that has some viability there. Direction, not destination. So Nathan, we, we have drank deep from your uh, well of knowledge and understanding. If we're interested in knowing what you're up to, do you have any publications planned or a place where we can uh, find out what you're working on? I have contributed to several fan works in the past in pre-Vault, pre-Storytellers Vault eras. So um, if you want to go digging for things like uh, Dreamcatchers for Hunter the Vigil, which was the book on fairy hunting, a fan book on fairy hunting, which in retrospect, I'm a little uneasy about that title. Also, I, I think I uh, I have some contributions to back in the old World Darkness days. I should call it, it's back, so I should call it, but... Uh, I there was an Orpheus fan work on Terrell and Squib that I contributed to, which was an antagonist organization. I will note that Dreamcatchers is official because Mr. Gone made character sheets for it. And that's oh, when that's you know true. that you've made it. That's all I'm yeah. saying. But I, I helped contribute a couple of the, the endowments and some of the org- and some of the hunter compacts uh compacts in there. In terms of things I'm working on currently for World of Darkness stuff. I, I suppose it will be fully announced before this airs. So I can go ahead and say that I am spearheading the inanime 
revision and expansion for the Changeling 30th anniversary project with the Changeling the podcast team. Oh, wonderful. Uh, wanting to reach out to me about any of this and other works I'm working on, I, but I'm not really on any social media anymore except discords. So obviously I'm on the Mage the Podcast Discord. I'm on the Changeling the Podcast Discord. I'm also very frequent contributor on the Scion Discord if uh, uh, anyone's into that game. But I under the username Glamour Weaver on those servers. Well, Nathan, thank you so much for joining us today. All right. This was a lot of fun. This has been made to the podcast where we will always consider you our Elizabeth rather than our James. This show is made possible by our executive producers who include Ben Bendelow, Oracle of the Taming of the Shoe, the syndicate play about domesticating footwear. Buck Gregory, Oracle of the Progenitor Hamlet, which is just a very tiny pig. Christopher Phillips, Oracle of Romeo in Joliet, the Darkling version where they both resettle in Illinois. Guy Stewart, Oracle of Othello by the Hermetics, which is just about the board game. Jay Widener, Oracle of Twelfth Bite, the Elizabethan recipe book by the Salificati. Josh Hillerup, Oracle of the Merchant of Venison, the Verbena play extolling the importance of game meat. Mikhail, Oracle of As You Like It by the Cultists. You know. Pukaji, Oracle of Much Ado About Puffins, the... High North Kavadi piece about this endangered spirit companion. Sean Gallagher, Oracle of McDeath, the Euthanatoi Wujia film that is basically just John Wick 5. The Crew of Erebus, Oracle of The Tempest, where hermetic storm mages tell stories about the best storms they ever summoned. Saint UX player, Oracle of Tragedy of Errors, an iterator X morality play about the importance of observing syntax rules. Additionally, Archmaster Andrew Edelstein, Archmaster Rather the Blue, Archmaster Dan Svensson, Archmaster Derek Semsick, Archmaster Leroy Bryce, Archmaster Michael Parker, Archmaster Morgan Aran, Archmaster Nathan Weaver, Alex, Alexia, Ambiversion, Anders S, Anon, Paderfi, Birdo, Blaze Hibbert, Blake Ryan, Brandon, Bryce Perry, Bubba the Pale One, Chris Blake, Sin Shodas, Daniel Cuppin, Daniel Scribner, Darren Hennessy, David Roy, Dennis Osborne, Eli Levenger, Eric Schwenk, Fragger Rock, Friedrich Owl, George Lara, Henry Kraft, Ia Bull, Jason Kennedy, Jason Vines, Jason W. Briggs, Jay Gatsby, Jeff Brin, Jenna F., Jervis Johnson, John Magnuson, Jolyn Andes, Lawson Stuff, Joshua Heath, Kathleen Halperin, Chris Kinner, Leslie Weatherstone, Manel Canos, Matthew Prohl, Michael Creedle, Nabero, Neil Patterson, Nikita Klamanov, Oliver Schindler, Patrick McNamara, Patrick Mulder, Rachel Grace, Ricardo, Richard Pat Brewster, Robart the Robot, Rubem Joseph, Ryan Stray, Rob H., Ryan Kendi, Samuel Tobin, Sev Nessus, Starfish, Stephen Carton, Thrice Great, Vincent Hamilton, Walter, William Connolly, and William Martin. Our EP shout-out this week is to Sev Nessus. It really sounded like that was the name of a Dark Sith Lord or possibly a Magic Planeswalker, but Nessus seems to be a computer vulnerability detection tool or company, which made me wonder what some of the oddest computer hacks have been. My three favorite were Rowhammer in 2014, where you could repeatedly access a row of memory, causing bit flips in adjacent rows. The you computed so hard, the data changed. I want to see this in the game where you do the same effect in the same spot so often, reality around it breaks. Meltdown Inspector in 2018, which took advantage of the speculative execution capability of modern microprocessors, where spare capacity can be used to do things like evaluate both statements in an if statement. I like this as a way to plant an explosive in causality if someone tries to predict what you're going to do. And Blueborn in 2017, where there was a Bluetooth vulnerability because of course there was, it's Bluetooth. Bluetooth is like a global paradox backlash and proof that we don't live in a good timeline with functional wireless standards. When I think of computer vulnerabilities, I'll think of you, Sev. Rather listen on YouTube, search Mage the Podcast on YouTube to find our full library there. If you super like this episode or super didn't, drop us a line at magethepodcast at gmail.com or at Mage the Podcast on Twitter. 
We have a hop in Discord community at discord.me slash mates the podcast. Mates the podcast is also on Mastodon at dice.camp slash at mates the podcast. If you like us, please give us a review on the platform of your choosing or tell a friend about us. Also go to matesthepodcast.com for show notes and all of our previous shows. Now go change reality. Bye.